0: Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. On today's episode, I'm joined by Sapana co-founder and CEO Daniel J. Keys. Sapana is a decentralized search infrastructure provider. Developers can create Sapana engines, which are able to index data on any decentralized protocol to create search APIs or feed data into other Sapana engines. The community has built engines enabling users to search mirror articles on L1, Optimism, and Arweave, Lens posts on Polygon POS, and Farcaster casts on Farcaster's hub network. Over time, Sipana aims to decentralize the operation of its backend software too. At the top of the show, Daniel and I discuss GPT and related large language model tooling and what impacts they're having on his company's work building new software products. We turn to how Sapana works, who it's useful for, and how it's being used in the market today. At the end of the show, we discuss how Sapana's searchable Web3 data APIs may provide verifiable data sources to LLMs in a world of bot content. It was great talking with Daniel about Sapana. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided for entertainment and education purposes only and does not constitute financial advice or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto is risky and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Hey Daniel, how's it going? How are you today? I'm good.
1: I'm doing good. I'm trying to balance all the hectic nature of the world that we find ourselves in, but I'm good.
0: (laughs) Which part of hectic world is on your mind today? Is it it the AI uh, or is it the the end of yet Western dominance or microplastics, maybe?
1: I think it's all connected. I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but uh, uh, it's mainly AI. I think I have, uh, unfortunately, a healthy dose of uh, of fear and uh, anxiety around the coming uh, consciousness of uh, the AI systems that we're building. So it's at the same time exhilarating. And I think to myself, what, a hundred years to get to be alive in, uh, but nonetheless, uh, very, very scary.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it it feels, I mean, the last hundred were pretty wild too. I talk to my grandmother sometimes, she's in her nineties and I think about what it was like in the the twenties and thirties, so different. But this certainly does seem like an inflection point. Have you seen Auto GPT? Is
1: that the self healing one?
0: Oh, I don't know. You're gonna to have to tell me about that one. Auto GPT is the one where it can run sequential commands and feed the output of API calls that it's making and criticism oh. of those outputs into its subsequent calls. I've seen
1: that. It's like seeing your own brain kind of run itself on a on a screen. It's uh, <laughs> super scary. Yeah.
0: What's the self healing stuff? Uh,
1: very similar, but basically just printing out, I think it was a GitHub repo called Wolverine, which is a beautiful name. Uh, it basically just kind of outputted the uh, code errors and then inputted that back into uh, a yeah, GPT okay. prompt. Yeah.
0: So code writing styled GPT.
1: Yeah, code writing that then produces wrong code that then fixes itself automatically until you get the output that you're supposed to.
0: Very cool. And it really seems to work, seems to output something usable?
1: Yeah. And I think even more interesting than that is the... Uh, have you seen this paper about GPT's ability to correct itself by just prompting itself if it had succeeded in answering the prompt's requirements correctly? So it increases accuracy by 20 plus percent. If after the response, all you do is say, did you cover all the requirements? And then just by having that introspection. It almost has this emergent property of learning. And it's super interesting because it, it seems like this is you know coming from the complexity of the system and from nowhere in particular. But it's also interesting because it changes the competitive landscape because now much smaller models or models that are trained on kind of only the outputs of other GPT models can heal quickly to becoming. Just as competitive or just as good, so it's this kind of race to the bottom, so to speak,
0: yeah, that's interesting. yeah I, I was looking at something um have you seen vicuna uh, no, it's like a variation on alpaca, these like tuned mm-hmm. llama. there's a great thing um if you go to uh, v i c u n a dot l m dot org so vicuna dot l m dot org They are using GPT-4 to rank the quality of their output as compared to 3.5, and they basically do out on the same prompt from Raw Llama, Alpaca, Vicuna, Bard, and GPT-3.5, and then have GPT-4 assess the quality, describe the differences, and rank on 10 to tune themselves, which I guess a lot of people are doing this kind of thing now, but... Pretty cool. It's, it makes me wonder if the solution. I mean, will they try to ban this use of the API to kind of exfiltrate the latent knowledge and intelligence in GPT 4? Or will, I mean, obviously you could run GPT 4 on the requests and say, well, did these requests look like someone trying to train a competitive model or not? And let's kill their API key or something.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the competition in, in this kind of post GPT world is is really interesting to look at because. Not only are uh, so many of these models open source, like, like, I think one of the most amazing things about uh, ChatGPT was that there's no real secret to what they did. Like, They just kind of did it a little bit better than everyone else who was trying to do it. And so basically all of the methodologies and the practices that they used are well known. And so... Even when they succeed in doing something, I I think it's really just a matter of of weeks or months until the next large train is capable of doing that as well. So I think it's going to be really, really hard to create long-term moats in this world. And I think we're just going to end up seeing this kind of foundational power kind of uh, go to the biggest players, and then uh, they'll continue to kind of win and compete on things that they've already been winning at so like you know microsoft can embed it into their entire suite and then use the proprietary data that they have and the same is true for kind of every other big you know salesforce and and google and every other big player um so but i think it's gonna be very hard for smaller companies to compete in this world because uh, everything becomes a feature that can be built in, uh, in in orders of magnitude less time than before so it's uh definitely a new competitive landscape that i think we find
0: ourselves in yeah I, I i've had this idea for a while that the real metaverse land is as it always was just attention the same as the web yeah. land was attention <laughs> and having the domain name or app icon that people have on their phone what have you it is what or the api people are familiar with or os affordances that people are used to or the bank identity platform etc becomes you know they just pick up the new technologies but or being an influencer, if you already have an audience on YouTube and you're now supercharged with I don't know, Dali two or whatever. Yeah. You know, you don't lose your audience from one day to the next. But it maybe does give some advantage to people who think differently than those organizations. I mean, innovators dilemma has always been a case of the it's not that the larger organization doesn't have the capacity. I mean, even right right now we're looking at it now, like BARD sucks compared to GPT four, but even GPT three point five it's it's sort of not as good and they totally innovators dilemmaed themselves into not shipping an LLM years ago, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like they they definitely fumbled the ball there but I think what's important is what will happen now that they realize it and and I think that what's perhaps different about this time around is that they already have everything they need in order to build it. So it's just a matter of can they pivot DeepMind into this kind of work and I think that because these things will become like so foundational that perhaps that Head Start doesn't matter as much as we think it is, right? They still have billions of users and perhaps the you know the greatest data set of all time. And so it might matter for the kind of first leg of the, of the race, uh, but this is many laps around. And so I still think they're going to kind of continue to be a big name. And it's not like, you know, we've seen the end of Google
0: by any means. Totally. I mean, look at IBM or Microsoft or or all these other companies that have stuck around for a long time. I I think about, I don't know exactly what point he was trying to make, but Peter Thiel's uh, zero to one graph and the first half of the book, he shows like the revenue generation potential of LinkedIn or PayPal or some like large company and that the majority of the revenue that they generate is, you know, 15 years after it's not cool anymore is when they're actually actually making the money. And I think that's probably to some extent still true for Google and things like that. I'm not going to stop using Gmail tomorrow just because GPT exists. By that logic, like, so let's say there is some auto GPT that could ostensibly create an equivalent service to Gmail, but without all the cruft of years of development, is it going to convince me to switch? Mm, I'm not sure. It's going to be pretty uphill for a startup to use that GPT power to directly replace an incumbent that I'm more familiar with, but maybe to build some new service that I've never used, it'll just be purely helpful to startup founders.
1: Yeah, I think it's even more sinister than that because what GPT allows the incumbents to do is become even better. So if what before a small change in user behavior could have carved you out a part of a business, then you couldn't continue to like, you know, I'm thinking of you know superhuman, for instance. A better UI kind of, you know, brought them tens of millions of users, but now the kind of the power up that they get from GPT is just it's unparalleled. So it'll make even even the bad experience is so much better.
0: Hmm. But you're saying that there's maybe a chance that the anything could be replicated by the people who really have the cheapest access to the models and the most talent to build derivative, even software development tooling, uh, that they can just outpace any new player.
1: Yeah. Like I, I, think, um, I, I think at its base, GPT is like a reasoning engine and it's going to get much, much better at reasoning. But even in the versions that we have now, That with a very large corpus of data is already enough to kind of build a a 10x, you know, 100x improvement to Gmail. Um, And so the the players that already have that name brand and that data, I think, will be able to utilize the benefits of GPT before uh, uh, anyone else. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. If their organizational lethargy uh, doesn't get in the way. Yeah, well, there's still going to be a ton of
1: businesses that, that, that go under because of this, because those businesses are now just one query line in a bigger uh, company. And
0: and I think it's interesting, the... though, because we, we were being told for years that no one would be able to compete with Google on machine learning uh, because they had all the data, or Facebook, because they had all the data. But OpenAI came out of nowhere, essentially. I mean, they had a lot of money, but nowhere near as much okay. money for R and D as those companies did and certainly not the amount of data that they have. I think my impression yeah. is that they got all the GPT data from essentially scraping the web. Maybe, maybe some yeah, deals uh, with people, but you know, not, not deals with Google, not deals with Facebook.
1: Yeah. I, I think, you know, they're also like a seven year overnight success. They, right, they've been working right, at right. this for a while and they've built up, you know, hundreds of the world's best, uh, AI researchers. But yeah, m- most of the data online is public, right? You have, uh, these kind of internet archives, I think one of the key things that OpenAI was able to do was to, like, the problem is really a filtering problem, because most of the internet is information that you don't want to bring into your model. You want to be able to deduplicate pages and data and take out spam and kind of just, you know, trash websites. And so being able to do that at scale is really, really tough. You can't even like load that much into memory to then analyze it to then make a decision on it. It has to be kind of other machine learning models that can run on that petabyte scale of data, make those decisions, and then eventually bring you a, a data set that's trainable. But, you know, I, I think one of the reasons it took so long for these things, you know, we've had the, the algorithms behind this for quite some time, but, it, you know, in the beginning, it was just it was so expensive to run. And so to spend tens of millions of dollars On a certain parameter change in an experiment to run something that you have no idea what's going to come out on the other side is really hard to do and hard to get, I think, the okay for, which is why it's been kind of dominated by just a few players. But now that kind of the cat's out of the bag, I think it becomes really interesting and dangerous because you just have to think that every large organization and every nation state actor is gonna just is a tiny percentage of the defense budget, you know, for countries and they're just gonna throw everything they can at this. So it's a nuclear
0: arms race. Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into Sipana. Uh, Weiju, I just want to say hey to Weiju, founder of uh, Interface App. How's it going? Hello, thank hey. you. Uh, how are you, Weiju?
2: Yeah. Long time no. Speech. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, likewise. Nice to hear you guys. Also, very interesting. I just wanted to actually to ask, like, uh, regarding when you mentioned the cost of switching to from Google Mail, you want not use, this is something like where, actually looking into like to basically because even going back to like microsoft office like we're looking like, at the notion and stuff like that because it would make sense to go full stuff because like you get skype you get notes you get everything for that and then everything is synchronized and then the models uh, well the ai can have access to, to all that so it just makes your flow so much better so i do thinking about switching to switching microsoft is, like, the, yeah, this is something like I would never would have thought of. But then, yeah, I mean, why not? If it's like by the better look of it, it can bring sort of um, uh, efficiency into the operations. Well,
0: I haven't looked much so, at what they what they yeah. with Office. I I saw that they were doing things, but I, I assumed it wasn't that great. Is there anything in particular the email stuff you find is looks good?
2: Well, but it looks, I think I saw like a preview video or something. So it's like a superhuman plus then uh, for all the kind of documents and it it can access all the sheets. It can access all the basically emails. It can basically, during the call, it can, I assume, document everything. It can, like, everything is basically accessible to it and then it can kind of reference a lot of it. But Maybe Daniel has more on that because I I just watched the video, I think, of the preview, how it it all synchronized. It just made a lot of sense
1: it's interesting. I, I think we're seeing it come out of uh, basically every uh, large kind of app ecosystem. And I think actually Apple is going to be the biggest here because of their dominance in hardware. But basically you can use kind of existing infrastructures to bring data into GPT prompts. And what you get is a, a much more powerful kind of experience that, you know, obviously you can kind of search and create and iterate with. And so yeah, you're seeing it across the whole suite of of Microsoft Office and Google announced it too, but actually I think like one of the really interesting places for innovation in kind of, you know, GPT is sharing state between models. So you're still going to want to do this on applications uh, and devices and browsers that are not necessarily in the same ecosystem that might not do it natively because they share a common backend. And so being able to share state between prompts and between kind of where a model is will be really crucial. Yeah, and it's even, I think, a place that maybe kind of Web3 can, can help pioneer because of this kind of shared infrastructure that sits below so many applications.
0: I'm also excited by the, like, you see Llama.cpp? Yeah. They basically compress uh, Llama into something that can run on uh, these smaller and smaller machines. You can run, like, the full-fledged Llama model on uh, 35 gigs of RAM, I think. You can, it's made for uh, MacBook as the target device, basically. So it'll be cool to see more and more of it running on hardware. I'm wondering if, if you're right, if Apple will quickly follow up with something. They, it feels like they have some genius for at least the hardware side of this. But if they've actually been building software, I mean, it seems like all voice assistant development stopped five years ago, basically Google teased some things, but I don't know if any of it ever actually came out where a is stuck in the past. So I don't know. It, it seems like this is the kind of thing that takes a while to get to something production ready. I wonder if Apple will catch up that quickly, but it will be exciting. Yeah, yeah. there's there's kind of two
1: competing trends here. One is that it seems like the larger the model is, the better it performs. And so the more parameters it has and the harder it is to to run on anything but a GPU cluster. But at the other side, this is going to be embedded on kind of devices and at the edge. And so I think that there's going to be that kind of trade-off game between which model to use and, and where to use it. And uh, I think it was uh, maybe a week or two weeks ago, Apple released uh, kind of a performance benchmark of these large, I think it was Stable Diffusion and a couple other models uh, that run on kind of M1 hardware uh, and M2. So yeah, they're, they're definitely, you, you got to think that they're kind of aiming for this. That this is the next uh, uh, kind of unlock for, for computation for them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, this is very interesting, but we are here to talk about Sapana, and I'm sure we'll come back to talking about how uh, GPT has an influence on, and LLMs in general have an influence on on what Sapana is up to. But for the people who aren't familiar, what is Sapana?
1: Yeah, so the TLDR is that Sapana is a decentralized search infrastructure for blockchains and Web3. Uh, and so what that means is that we've built uh, a suite of different tools for uh, searching dApps and blockchains, including search engines for individual dApps and and protocols. We built a, an infrastructure called Cloud Search, which uh, allows every dApp and protocol to integrate powerful search engine into their app with a few clicks. Um, so we have uh, an API and a developer dashboard where you can go and kind of spin up an engine and define the data that's streamed over to it. Um, and we've actually kind of been pioneering uh, Uh, ML ways of querying that data, so using kind of similar type uh, processes uh, like these large language models to to do better uh, search into that uh, engine, and then also power cross-dap search. One of the really interesting things about data in Web3 is that it's, uh, for the most part, open source, uh, and so you can build applications and uh, search experiences that are very hard to do in Web2, ones that cross many different domains, and so you can aggregate data from different protocols, from different dApps, from different uh, social networks or blogs on Web3, and kind of roll that up into a much better uh, data access layer for for devs and for, uh, for users. So uh, you can imagine searching across Lens and Ethereum and uh, Mirror uh, kind of all in one go. Um, and so those type of experiences are what is enabled by uh, the, the kind of platform we build and a lot of the uh, innovations that are uh, in the pipeline. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of 30,000 foot.
0: Yeah, I, I want to get into some of the details, but just to give people a little bit of context, what were you up to before you started working on Sapana? What was your life like before Web three?
1: Yeah, so well, I mean, the first thing I, I did was uh, I actually studied philosophy and and theology for a number of years. That was kind of my first my first passion and love. But I'm I'm a technologist kind of by trade. So I uh, I, I worked in a physics lab for the Department of Defense uh, in Israel for a number of years, and then. I studied machine learning and computer science and, uh, worked on, uh, kind of NLP and, uh, and those type of models and, uh, was in venture capital for a number of years after that investing uh, through a PC, uh, here in Israel, that's where I'm based. And, uh, a few years back, I started working on a, a new type of, uh, search engine for the web for web two, which was, uh, essentially an AI based search engine. And, uh, our, our kind of thesis was to kind of revolutionize how people do research on the web. And, uh, it's really interesting to see gpt do that today kind of uh, so many of the the features and and things that we had kind of built very narrowly are now kind of part of this very large capability that that gpt has uh, but kind of through that process through trying to get access to data in web 2 we kind of stumbled upon this this uh, really frustrating bug or feature of web 2 which is that you know not all the data is accessible to you so if you think about uh, kind of platforms like linkedin or twitter you know, you can interact with that uh, on the UI, but on the data side, they they shut down their APIs. It's really hard to get kind of root access to that data. And so but there were all of these search tools that we wanted to build on top of that data and just couldn't do. And so that kind of led us down the rabbit hole of uh, of Web3 and open data and blockchains. And we started building and tinkering and and uh, uh, kind of spun up uh, a few engines for different protocols and those kind of took off. And it really showed us the the way... That, you know, you could build a, a new type of search infrastructure for the web, specifically for the, for the open web. And that's kind of that's what led us to
0: uh, to support and work on this. Amazing. So the problem that it's solving then is basically giving people access to the data that is available one way or another. I, the, the first example of Sapana that I saw was the mirror search. I think it's is it ask Ask Mirror. Yeah, ask mirror.xyz. Ask mirror.xyz. So, this is search on top of mirror, which at least at the time, uh, mirror had no built in search in their website. So, that's fetching data. If I recall correctly, the mirror stuff is on Arweave, right? So, you're indexing uh, material that's available not just directly on the blockchain. So, it's not just a, an equivalent to something like the graph or, I don't know, the Etherscan API or Infura API. Instead, it's also going and fetching things beyond the blockchain itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Web three is this kind of umbrella term, um, but really, there's you know different networks and protocols and DApps. Some of those are centralized, some of those are decentralized. They use all different types of backends and messaging protocols between them. And we didn't think the world needed another block explorer. We thought what was needed was a way to kind of search and aggregate and discover all of that content. And so, kind of first thing we built were these kind of vertical specific search experiences. So uh, the data within each of these applications and protocols is kind of so uh, confusing as it is, right? I mean, even Mirror, they they use Arweave, they use Optimism, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things that happen uh, in in between there. And so it's already hard enough to find things within vertical specific places in Web3. But because that data is open source, you can kind of see that data structure. And so you can build breadth and depth search at the same time, right? You can kind of understand the underlying data structure of each application or each contract or each protocol, uh, and build very, um, a very good, very accurate search for that. Um, but then you can also aggregate that across kind of N number of, of applications and chains. And that's uh, kind of a very unique thing to web three in web two the the, at least today, still the best search for individual, platforms are within those platforms. So uh, like no one understands TikTok data as much as TikTok. So it, you know, the best way to kind of find creators or videos on TikTok is, is kind of through their search and application. On Web3, that's flipped, right? You can kind of see all that data and you can build you know, what we call composable engines, which are ways of kind of putting data from one engine into another and, and kind of using that for better recommendations, better personalization, a lot of these kind of downstream features that are possible.
0: So does each application, like I know you also do search for Lens. Is it one engine for all of Lens? Is it, Do you need an engine for each protocol that you're indexing?
1: Yeah, so it, it could be a one engine for Lens. You could also do kind of a an, an engine for parts of Lens, right? So if you only wanted to take, you know, music creators on Lens and take that and connect that to something else, you could spin up an engine just for that. Um, but you could also do an engine just for Lens.
0: Got it. And so Mirror, for instance, is just one engine that's able to index across uh, the three protocols like uh, Mainnet, Optimism, and and Arweave? Yeah, yeah. Got it. And how does this compare to something like Dune or the Graph? I know the Graph also does, I think, a little bit of IPFS indexing, if you want. So it it can do some bridging across protocols and is on some chains. I mean, it's a pretty technical audience. So maybe you could explain a little bit how it compares to these other options that are out there.
1: Sure, yeah. So. In general, in Web3, almost everyone is kind of looking at the same data. And the question is how you organize that data and how you structure it for different applications. So the graph is a really good uh, kind of database for many different applications. So you can think of them like your Postgres. Um, and we're on the other side of that, kind of uh, solving for more search kind of specific applications. So we would be your, your Elasticsearch, Algolia, your kind of uh, embedding space or kind of vector DB for different types of things. Um, so it's you know same data, but uh, different types of applications. Um, and then Dune you know, would be the same thing. They're, they're kind of building up their kind of SQL style uh, data retrieval specifically for graphs and tabular things that they can do there.
0: Right. Um, yeah. Whereas Saban is more focused on search, specifically. Or you just get search naturally with the way that your the way that Sapana is indexing is search more a convenient way to explain the functionality of Sapana or is Sapana's product really essentially tied to search specifically?
1: It's a good question. It's a combination of both. So there are kind of infrastructure decisions that we make so that we have the, the best performance, the fastest search possible on par with kind of any other infrastructure in in Web two or or elsewhere. But then there's also the uh, kind of features that are built around that. So one feature we built specifically for this was you know Web3 data resolvers. So if you have a data object, some of that data is on-chain and some of that data is off-chain and some of that data is in IPFS. We'll, for instance, grab that IPFS data in real time and then bring it back and store it within that same data object. So you can now search through the data that you have, data that's on-chain and the data uh, that might be on decentralized storage. So it's kind of a much more intuitive and, and kind of useful way to, to declare the, the kind of data that you have in your application and then build experiences on top of that. So it's a combination of, of kind of bottom-up uh, infrastructure and architecture decisions and also uh, the type of features that we build uh, into that. So uh, another example would be kind of a focus on personalization and kind of recommendation algorithms that are specific towards those types of uh, experiences. Um, so that that kind of wouldn't come out of the box with your Postgres or Mongo or things like that.
0: Right, right. Uh, I saw you've also got um, someone's built an engine for Farcaster's casts, which is a pretty recent protocol and a smaller one. So uh, I guess Sapana is able to adapt to new protocols that emerge. It's not fixed to EVM or RWE for these things.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, sometimes we're running nodes ourselves, gearing up to launch kind of native support for uh, a bunch of chains but it's it's also just uh you have the ability to kind of define that that data and then stream it over um and so wherever that data comes from we're, we're kind of agnostic to it because we're essentially kind of building search on top of that
0: got it i see are there any other applications that uh, uh, any other interesting engines or things that we haven't talked about in terms of using Sapana to establish search with a protocol that that people might not imagine is possible or, or, or available elsewhere anything you've seen uh, in the wild people are doing that's cool
1: yeah, so I, I think a lot of the ones, a lot of the really interesting ones are, revolve around kind of social first things in mm-hmm. Web3. So that's kind of Lens and Deeso and, and Mirror and, uh, you know, Farcaster. And we've seen Poops ops and uh, ENS and uh, things that are kind of uh, not exactly DeFi, although our infrastructure works for DeFi, uh, but th- there's kind of a lot of existing infrastructures for that. So we've seen a lot of kind of building and, and, and searching around the things where you want uh, kind of more human-readable kind of interaction with the underlying content, and I think Web three in general is is moving uh, to that direction. I think um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, DeFi is critical, and and kind of sound money is critical. But these other experiences that can be built in in this this type of uh, internet where uh, users have ownership over their data, where things are are transparent, I think those are going to get built out into more and more user experiences on on Web three. Yeah, so, so that's, I think, where a lot of the uh, the kind of tinkering and innovation is happening.
0: And is it useful, uh, like, are, are these social apps using Sipana exclusively for their search function, or would it be applicable for feeds or other kinds of content discovery display?
1: Yeah, no, you can use it for, for other things. You can use it for feeds or for, in general, as a data store, if, if the type of data that you have is, you know, more attuned to this type. In general, our infrastructure comes with kind of the state-of-the-art search, but then also. A very good database for for structured data as well so you can kind of power all of those things as well i think actually a lot of the applications that we use are built on top of these type of infrastructures and we, we don't really realize it so you know i think for instance uh, coinbase their nft wallet is built entirely on a search infrastructure if i'm not mistaken so those type of applications are, are kind of really easy to spin up on
0: uh, on this type of infra for someone who's using the graph, is it really like end user search that m- makes Sipana relevant? Or where does the graph start to not provide enough and you need something that Sipana is offering?
1: Yeah, so I, I think if you wanna use off-chain data, you wanna not necessarily take data from a contract or a place on chain that you know how to define, but maybe you have other data in your in, in your database or, or another kind of place in Web3 that you wanna get access to. Uh, we're, we're really good at um, at helping with that, but then also on if you need an experience that's beyond uh, a database, right? That you want to search for, that you want kind of advanced filtering and, and um, the ability to um, kind of sift and search through different fields. You know, machine learning search on top of that. All of that you can you can find on Sapana.
0: because you can do a kind of fuzzy search with Sapana, right? It does. You don't need to be searching exact character correctly. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly. That's kind of where these infrastructures excel at. You know, imagine you're, you're searching for something on, on Twitter or Google, and you don't want to find the exact thing, but you want to find things around it and things that are related to it. and You want to kind of add in other signals to that, that ranking algorithm. All of those things are kind of hyper-optimized for these type of uh, infrastructures.
0: So if someone was going to build like a new Farcaster or Lens, say iPhone app or web app, would it make sense for them to use and they can get access to the engines like the engines are available once someone creates one, something that anybody yeah. could use?
1: Yeah, exactly. So you can build your own engine on it, but then you can also access other engines that are public. Um, So you have the ability to create a private or public engine and uh, so you can access public engines uh, and feed into other applications, engines, data into Mm -hmm. your experience. So if if you were building uh, a new type of, you know, Web3 music app and you wanted to pull in data from Lens and Farcaster and Mirror and NFTs and things like that, you could do that kind of out of the box.
0: So it's very useful. It sounds like for aggregation, like a Back in the day, there was what friend feed, like aggregating different things at uh, different social networks into a single interface. If the engines exist, that sounds like it would be pretty trivial to do for Sapana to create a new interface that lets you traverse all of them. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. You, you mentioned briefly, but how do you think LLMs and GPT change can interact with something like what you've built? Is it, it does it fit in nicely?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, as you spoke earlier, I think more more broadly, it's uh, it's, it's really kind of changing the the landscape for everyone. And I think uh, every company is, if they're not, then they should be kind of pushing themselves to understand how this uh, affects them today and how kind of second order effects of this uh, will come into play. So, you know, one thing that I think we'll we'll begin to see is that basically every application, every text field will be uh, kind of GPT embedded. So you'll be able to pull data in from whatever database you use that's optimized for your type of experience. So maybe that's Sopana because it's, you have a lot of text and you want really fast retrieval and things like that. And so you can pull that data in, bring it to a GPT-like model and then uh, interface with the data in, in this kind of really powerful chat way where you can, you know, I think in general, search is moving to something that's retrieval-based to something that is uh, interactive and agent-based. So you're not only kind of calling on data, but you're also interacting with that data. So, you know, show me the accounts and the addresses that have done this and that and then turn that into a table and email it to my team. Those type of things I think are going to basically be ubiquitous to every place that you interact with data. So th- that's like the first I think first order of of change we'll see. The second order of change is that in a world that's flooded with post GPT data, it's going to be basically impossible to tell the difference between content and data that originated from a human and one that originated from you know, a bot or an agent. And so I think that if you kind of stop and think about all the different functions in society and business that rely on this, the kind of ability, the the fact that you know that it took someone a while to do that thing, right? Like you get an email or, you know, someone, you know, wants to fight a parking ticket or you issue an insurance claim, right? Like there was work that gone into that and that kind of goes out the window now. So you can, you know, kind of basically DDoS anything and kind of just flood the channel, so to speak. So, Right. Imagine uh, an airline customer support line that now with, with Whisper, you can create an infinite amount of totally real sounding you know, calls. So right. I think uh, kind of Web3 and, and blockchains and proofs in particular are going to be the kind of anchor against that. Right, You're going to have to prove and verify you know, not only who you are, but where that data came from and what the process that that data took in order to get to that endpoint. And so there's a lot of interesting work that the team is doing around that. In our protocol, we've, we've been working on something that we call proof of ETL, which is essentially a way to create ETL pipelines that do exactly this. It's you know from the, the genesis of that data to every type of transformation and change that the data would go through to the place that you store that data in a database, all of that can be traced and improved so that you can store that object in a database and then interact with it with kind of a much, much stronger kind of integrity check around that data and its and its origin so i think that's kind of like where crypto comes to defend against the uh the the age of ai
0: that's interesting because i i've been worried that i I mean obviously i agree with you and actually your example of uh flooding a call center reminds me a little bit of uh i read an article recently about apparently rupert murdoch in the early 2000s i think he owned sky in the uk and they murdoch through Sky employed, essentially gave like Juarez hacker forum administrator cracked copies of their rival satellite companies satellite keys, whatever the thing is that you purchase in order to get premium access to, to their satellite network, to distribute it online so that they would essentially lose all their revenue and Sky could wow. be a dominant television satellite provider in the UK. Uh, there's BBC articles about it. And obviously the same thing applies, right? You could flood whatever rival airline with uh, customer service calls, although it seems like for all of recent memory, they've always been over capacity and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, it can only get better. Uh. Yeah, exactly. But it, it seems to me like the thrust of that is towards like uh, one version of this is like there's no reason anymore to argue on the internet. There's no point in arguing on the internet anymore because obviously any uh, half intelligent person will just have a bot manage their side of the argument and go, go do something more interesting or fun. And The consequence of that in my imagination is that uh, KYC becomes the counterpoint to generated text and audio and video, et cetera, which would be the opposite of crypto, you know, more uh, leaning on traditional identification structures. But you think that key pairs and proofs on the basis of private keys might be a solution instead. To me, the problem is that the bots can generate those too, you know?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, KYC only goes so far, right? So there's like different levels of this authentication problem, right? There's, you indeed are a real human. There's the output that you're, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, (laughs) We're all just a a shadow on someone's wall. But, (laughs) you know, so you're, you know, you're a person and then the output of that person is them, right? As opposed to uh, generated. Um, Like, imagine that you want, you know, with with Midjourney today, you can create evidence for basically anything. So, you know, there's an insurance company, and here's my car crash. It's the right license plate, my face in it. You know, video and audio from everyone around in the crash, and like, and that's coming from a KYC person, right? So, I think that you know, one place that crypto, and I'm, I'm using crypto very broadly here, right? It might not be kind of on-chain Ethereum transaction. It could be much stronger cryptographic proofs that are zk-enabled that allow existing business functions to survive, right? Being able to say, okay, I, I know the origin of this this data, um, and I know that nothing else or nothing more was added to it. So, you know, I think in the very near future, we're going to see hardware or right. applications that are are very limited to what they can do. Like I could imagine a social network where you can only post if you've actually hit all the the keypad in the right areas or c- cameras that, you know, pull pixels and add that directly into a proof. So I think those type of things are going to be necessary to have for the times that we want to interact with humans, which might be way less. You know, like you know, ro- robots are awesome. We're still going to need ways of, of validating
0: that. I guess we've seen shades of that with, uh, I mean, simple software things like Snapchat only being or originally at least only being able to send photos that originated within the app, which as long as you don't have a rooted iPhone. You know, you're sort of depending on Apple's uh, iron fist there or equivalently in the hardware having components that will insist that other components be, have some kind of manufacturer signature on the component in order order for the the device to power on. These things aren't spoof proof, but they're for regular people, uh, some level of assurance, but it does make me wonder about like, I don't know a whole lot about this kind of like hardware signed images or sensor data signed by the hardware and the game theory of proving that the hardware was not tampered with i guess people like Worldcoin are also dealing with these things
1: yeah yeah it's not to say that these things are not tamper proof and you know obviously we're all kind of subject to the limitations of the hash functions that we use and but it lowers by orders of magnitude the chance that you'll be spammed or ddos by these things because i I think one of the things that's coming is it You used to have to be very sophisticated, very smart, and very bold to do kind of like fraud and attacks on these levels. But now, a lot of that has gone uh, to zero. Right, so you can create with GPT, you know, fraud financial data with a click of a button. Right, like you know, here's this company, here's this Excel. Now tell this story. Like that, that is very easy to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be. I think even in places where we didn't think we needed trust, we're going to need trust because it's going to be so easy for the other side to manipulate us without us even knowing, especially for results that are non-deterministic, right? Like it's for models or for things where I know the answer to it, I can easily check it. That's one thing. But if it's just stream of data that could be this way or could be that way, I'll have no idea that I'm interacting with the wrong person or the wrong data or, or the wrong model. So I think it's going to kind of introduce a, a whole new era of what it means to to have trust online. I think it's it's interesting to think about, you know, in the age of AI where, you know, you know, GPT eats, you know, software, you know, one of the only things that thrives in that time is the need for for trust, right? Because it's like if you imagine this trend line, this trend line going up and to the right, countering that is the need for validation and trust. And so I do think it's this like kind of trillion dollar business that's that's coming it'll be interesting. And I think crypto has a, has a huge part to play there.
0: Yeah, definitely. At the very least, because what's easier to create as a financial account than a <laughs> key pair. <Yeah. laughs> no, uh, no KYC required. Uh, so that's the end of my list of questions. I don't know if uh, there was any topics that we didn't cover that you think would be relevant to discuss or or that you'd like uh, builders in the space to know about, about Sabana. I, I
1: think we covered a lot. I mean, it was uh, it was very interesting. And, uh, yeah, kudos on uh, kind of putting together this, uh, uh, this series. It's, uh, it's been interesting to listen to.
0: Um, if people yeah. want to check out Sapana, what's the best thing to do?
1: Yeah, we're just uh, Sipana.io, and we're going to have a lot of updates coming in a very short order. Um, about have you super updates your, and
0: your building process with GPT?
1: Uh, yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. I, like, almost never get to code uh, just to kind of because of my day-to-day, and, and just today I got to, like, Ship two new things that I wanted to build. And it was just easier to do with uh, GPT than, you know, have someone else look into it. And uh, a human. Yeah. It's incredible. Like the, uh, before it puts us out of a job, I think we'll see productivity rise uh, a great deal. Hmm.
0: Exciting times. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for coming through. This is great. Thank
1: you very much. Take
0: care. All right. Thanks for everybody for coming to listen next week. Actually, there may be a pause because I'm going to be in Tokyo for ETH Tokyo for a couple weeks. So we will see if I'm able to maybe do some off hour versions, maybe with some locals. But nevertheless, keep tuned to the Twitter to find out when the next episode is. And thank you for coming through. See you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter, at Nicholas, with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC, on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.